0: I joke about it being the three O's. First is organization, second one's optimization, and the third one is an ovation. So joke about that in being the and. Hi, I'm Nils Vina,
1: and you're listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast, a show dedicated to demystifying leadership development, one conversation at a time. Each week, I sit down with leaders in the B2B space to discuss their journey and what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous, and the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard, you just need a guide and the right set of tools So head on over to B2BLeadersAcademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be. Hello and welcome to another episode of the B2B Leadership Podcast. My name is Nils Vinya, and today my guest is Matt Falk. Matt, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks Nils. Thanks for having me.
1: My pleasure, Matt. I'm really looking forward to digging into all things leadership and your background. But first, would you share with me and the
0: audience a little bit about where you're working today and what your role is? Sure. Hey, everybody. Matt Falk. I'm the VP of Engineering at Orbital Insight. Orbital Insight is a medium-sized startup, and largely we deal with geospatial data trying to understand what's happening on and to the Earth, which we do with our platform, which is currently called Go. And geospatial data, can you
1: give us an example of like the type of geospatial data that you're working with, or maybe one of the problems that you solve for one of your clients because I think that industry is completely fascinating having a
0: very small exposure to it long ago. Sure, sure. So when I talk about geospatial data, really what we mean is anything that has latitude and longitude associated with it. For us, we started with satellite imagery. So imagery that comes from overhead sensors constantly orbiting around the globe, taking pictures. So this is one of the the very first data sources that we worked with. Additional data sources that we actually have into our platform now are things like geolocation cell phone pings. This is anonymized data that comes from everybody's cell phone. When you're using your cell phone, you have different apps open. In the background, it's constantly talking to GPS satellites, giving your location. But it does that, and we get that data in an anonymized fashion. So we're not actually tracking any individual people. We're getting these aggregate signals that we can use in our platform. Other types of data are connected device data. So connected planes or connected cars, think about the OnStar system in your car, constantly pinging location data, all that data gets into our system in some way or another. And we talk about that as geospatial data. Imagery can also come from drones, balloons, anything flying overhead, taking pictures. And now there's additional data sources that we're also looking to get into our system in the future. You can think about radar, LIDAR, SAR, synthetic aperture radar. Other types of imagery that's not necessarily visible to the naked eye, but other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that take images around the planet. Again, everything that has a lot long associated with it, that's geospatial data that we want to get into our platform and use for additional context.
1: Wow. And then what are some of the uses of that data? Are you answering your client's most pressing questions about where their apps are being used or where their fleet of cars is? Or what are some of the examples of just exactly what that data is used for?
0: The use cases are are pretty much endless. Every day we come across something new that we can do with this data. A lot of the key ones that we focus on right now are around supply chain traceability. So it's one of the main ones we're looking at right now. The ability to look at a particular location, look at a particular plant, and figure out context about what's happening there. First, you can try and get a sense of what the activity levels are if you want to look at different amounts of people that are aggregate coming to that location, the amount of cars parked in the parking lot outside a warehouse, the amount of trucks coming to that location. You get a sense of what the level of activity there is, how it trends over time. We can also do things where we actually look at that particular location and look at where information is coming from, where people are coming from, where trucks are coming from, where products are coming from, using what we call traceability. So you can imagine looking at a particular location on the planet and then getting even migration signals or travel patterns of where people are coming from to get there, and then vice versa, where they're going to after they've been to that location. This allows us to start building out the first, second, and third tier suppliers of a particular location, giving really an unprecedented view of somebody's supply chain that they can't get with their own data. So that's one particular use case around supply chain. Another one completely on the flip side is more of a government use case. So we do a lot of work with federal clients. A lot of the work here is around site monitoring, which has dual application, whether it can be used in a government use case, or if you're looking at a single property commercially. The idea is to basically look at an individual property, individual location, and give as much contextual information as you can to determine the level of activity there. How many people are there versus how many people were there three months ago? Are there more planes in the area than there were a few months ago? What are the types of planes that are present now? Are there more cars and trucks? Have buildings been constructed? Have forests been removed? Whatever it is, you're looking for that type of information and the level of activity of the pattern that's been trending over time.
1: Wow. That is absolutely fascinating. Super cool stuff. We could geek out on that for a long time. But I'm sure.
0: I want to get to, to the leadership topics that I
1: want to dig into today with you. And you're the VP of engineering today, which is awesome. And I look forward to hearing a little more about that later on. But let's rewind the clock a little bit. And would you share with us, how did you get into your first leadership position? You know, by leadership position, I simply mean just being responsible for one or more team of people. Tell us a little bit about that story.
0: Sure. So the very first one was when I was at Palantir almost a decade ago at this point. I joined the company and they have a number of different divisions. If you're not familiar with Palantir, again, it's another large data analytics company. They don't work just with geospatial data but really any type of data. They bring it into their platform, massage it and try and find patterns or anomalies for you and your, your particular data at your company. One of the divisions they had was obviously in cybersecurity. That's what I was brought in to come work on. While I was there about I want to say maybe two months in, I had been working on a particular team. Team was about eight. And we had been working on delivering very custom applications on top of the core platform for this customer. After that, I had shown that I was able to manage parts of this project, really take on more of a leadership role in that project and drive things to completion. So they asked me to take over for one of the, actually the largest cyber customer they had at that point and really lead that program from a technical perspective. It
1: was only a few months in that you got the opportunity to take on ownership and leadership of the largest client that they had. Is that right? In cyber. In cyber. So getting to that point, what were some of the things that you did, obviously, a little differently than everybody else who
0: was in cyber that
1: enabled you to be selected for that position that came up?
0: I'll say two of the biggest things were really the proactive nature and the organization aspect that I brought in. A lot of the programs that were happening at that time were one-off working with a particular customer, not necessarily having the best type of management around each one. Each one was delivering a particular set of value to a customer, but they were all kind of just one off doing their own thing. When I came in, I started to get a handle about what this program is doing. This particular customer's deployment is doing all together, was able to take that, start organizing some of the inefficiencies on that team, and then make much more of them optimized. So a lot of it was data engineering, pulling data in, data from different sources, data from the customers, their databases, their warehouses, pulling all that data in. A lot of it was failing on a day-to-day basis. So got in, one of the very first things that I did was look at that particular aspect of the pipeline, that particular aspect of their deployment, and start to optimize it, clean it up, make it very standardized. That became much more effective. It allowed us to accelerate the delivery standpoint for them or the delivery execution timeline for them. That was one of the things that really came in and showed, oh, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he, you know, gets a good sense of what's going on in this project. Maybe we can give him a little bit more responsibility. And that kind of built on itself, built on itself, taken a little bit more on, organizing a bit more, working with the various people on that team that were in different scope than I was in. And then they saw, okay, let's get a good handle on it from a more of a project management perspective, if you will. Really got a good grasp about what's going on here, able to talk to the customer, able to have more of that business conversation. Let's see if he can you know, run the program from a technical perspective.
1: Wow. That's fantastic. So just to be clear, nobody asked you to find all the inefficiencies in this group and project that you were joined. You identified these opportunities on your own. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, cool. And was this core characteristic of, you know, stuff that you've always done in the past where you always look for things that are inefficient or was this something you learned along the way? Like how did you come in and make that big of an impact that fast by optimizing what was, you know, not working as efficiently as it could?
0: So something I've kind of learned about myself over the years and then kind of focus my mantra on this are, are three areas that I like to focus on. It wasn't really my mantra back then, but it kind of developed over time. I joke about it being the three O's. First is organization. Second one's optimization. And the third one is innovation. ovation. So joke about that in being the and, but really those three components are really what I've, I've focused a lot of my work around at the time coming in and coming out of school earlier on. A lot of what I did in school, a lot of what I did in different various jobs, and a lot of who I am outside of work revolves around organization. Organization, making processes a bit more efficient, making things very structured and clean in that sense, something that I just, I find that I, I like to do as a hobby. So when I got into a particular area of work and I see something that's that's not that way, it's not structured, it's not organized, but I see that there could be a ton of benefit from that, that's when I'll kind of step in and say, okay, if I have free time, I'll take a look at that. That was really the very first aspect of that coming out where I can really use that that quality from my personal life embedded into my work life. I saw something there. It kind of bugged me, if you will. It was just, oh, this is very disorganized. It can be made much more efficient. That bothers me. Let me just do it. So I was able to step in and do that there. And honestly, that has grown over time. It's become, like I said, one of my core three principles. Organization has proved you know, extremely valuable, not just from a technical aspect, but from a business aspect, from a structural team organization aspect. Organization is one of the big three that I I focus on.
1: That's fantastic. And I love just the three O's, right? Organization, optimization, innovation. It gives you a framework and a lens to look at whatever you get involved with. So let's now come back to you get the opportunity to lead the largest project in the cyberspace for Palantir at the time. So what happened when you took over this project? And tell us about the progression
0: there. Actually, a particularly interesting story around that time, too. So I was coming into work with this client, learned a little bit more about what they had been doing, you know, how they liked us. And they had been a customer for a few years at this point. Earlier on, I think it was much more of the novelty of, oh, this is a really exciting space. It's a really exciting project, really powerful team. Let's see what they can find. Over time, I started to learn that it waned a little bit, the, the interest from the customer perspective. And I tried to figure out why exactly that was happening. Are we delivering less? Are we delivering worse than we were before? Are we not finding value? you know what's going on there. One of the things I noticed was that month over month we work with them and they request here's 10 things we want you to get done and month over month we would deliver 8. And it's not to say the team wasn't delivering well, wasn't working hard, whatever it was, it was the customer wanted too much and the team couldn't do that amount of work in the given amount of time. There weren't really realistic expectations that were being set. This is probably where my second if you will mantra but the second kind of phrase that I like to live by comes into play and it's it's under promise and over deliver. And this is something that I've, I've kind of learned at that point and built on and continued in my career. And I think it, it applies pretty much everywhere. Really what it comes down to is expectation setting. So at this point, talk with my manager, talk with his manager at the time, talk with the customer. And what I said I was going to do internally was instead of telling them we're going to deliver everything that they want this month, we're going to tell them this is what we can realistically deliver this month. So we're going to take their request. We're going to chart it out, project plan it out. See what realistically we can deliver, adding in appropriate buffer, and say, here you go. You wanted 10, realistically, we can do these six. You know, initially, you're going to get some pushback because every month before you said you can do 10. Well, every month before, we haven't quite delivered yet. So let's try six. Let's see what happens.
1: When you came up with this idea and you, you'd noticed this pattern and you presented this internally to your boss and your boss's boss, like, so the whole cyber leadership side and even more Palantir, what was their reaction? When you presented, here's what I want to do, they just put you in this leadership position, biggest client in cyber. Like, what did they say?
0: My direct manager was originally against it. He said, you know, we we can't do that. We've done this for them every month. They're going to have certain expectations. We need to do this. And my response at that point was, well, we need to level set at some point. We can't just indefinitely go on not delivering what they're expecting. We have to level set and you know set that bar somewhere. He said, all right, let's take it up with my manager. Let's have a three-way discussion and try and figure it out. They were both against the idea of, nope, they wanted this. We've signed up for this. We've told them we can do this. We have to keep delivering on that. And finally, my argument that I think won them over was, you know, at the end of the month, the team is going to produce X. Whatever we tell the customer, whatever we decide internally, the customer only has so much bandwidth. So at the end of the month, we will have produced X one way or the other. If we tell them we were going to deliver X plus two, they're going to be disappointed. If we told them we were going to deliver X minus two, they're gonna be pretty pleased that we delivered more than we expected. So they said, all right, you know what? I understand, I I agree with that philosophy. It's your decision. So try it out, you know, it's one way or the other, you get the heat for that. If it's good, great. If it's not, then that's on you too. Own that decision, but go for it. And went to the customer, presented how much they wanted us to do. I said, well, realistically, we'll take it back to team. We'll figure it out. Came back a few days later, said, we're gonna do X minus one or whatever it is, X minus three. Said, we'll deliver this. Got to the end of the month, the best month we've ever had with them in probably a two-year period. We delivered X plus one or X plus two. We out-delivered what we told them we were going to deliver. I don't think we actually exceeded what they wanted us to deliver originally, but that was by design. We delivered more than we expected to, which was more than we told them we were going to deliver. We under-promised, we over-delivered, and it was a, a great resetting point for that customer. So
1: you ultimately delivered less than what they asked you to, and they were happier as a result simply because of the leadership that you showed to have an honest look at what was realistic, mapped everything out, and then did not just blindly say, yeah, whatever you want, customer.
0: No, you stood up and said, hey. We set their expectations and then exceeded
1: them. And then exceeded them. If you know where the bar is, right, then you can always exceed the bar. But if you don't know where the bar is or the bar is always above and you always come below, you have what you had before. And I think that's a really great example of how you took control and obviously were recognized for that work and the opportunity to get there, number one, because you had had success with this before. But then in front of the largest client in your division, taking a completely polar opposite approach than had previously been done. That's fantastic. So what was the result of working with that client that way? They were ecstatic. And how about internally? What was the recognition like? Did
0: other projects start
1: to go this way or what happened?
0: Yeah, it started to go a little bit more. This obviously being the largest one and one of the first customers they had, there was really trend setting in that sense. It was leading the way. So a lot of what we learned on that one or tried out on that project could be used elsewhere in the company. One of the big things that came out of this was ran that program for a few more months. After that, they started to get together a pool of this, I'll call it the cyber team or some cyber-focused team that worked across the different customers. So it really wanted me to come in and play a large, impactful role on that team. And I think it was largely due to you know what I had shown on the the team itself for that particular customer, driving that from you know where the relationship was to where the where the relationship could be, knowing that that's something we want to take for our, a lot of our different customers. Honestly, it also really allowed us on that team to be much more innovative, which was also something the customer liked because we didn't just have to spend 100% of our resources doing X, Y, Z. The 10 items that the customer listed out allowed us to sit back and say, okay, let's think about this from a much more innovative standpoint, what we can really find value for the customer, not just hitting this checklist of 100 things or 10 things, however many it is.
1: Now that's fascinating, the innovation piece, because in any consulting or any customer relationship or even any just internal leadership relationship. That innovation piece plays such a big role because you can't buy that, right? You have to create the space. You have to create the environment. You as the leader did that beautifully here. And then that was a huge success that then could be modeled and you got the recognition for it. And other projects ended up like that. That's really awesome. Very cool. All right. Let's fast forward a little bit now. Tell us about how large is your organization today? Your VP of engineering, What's the size?
0: The engineering team itself is just over 50 right now. And we're looking to get to closer to 70, 75 by the end of the year. So a big hiring mandate at this point.
1: Well, that's some aggressive targets. Everybody listening. Exactly. Please send your resumes and give the 30 second pitch on who you're looking for, because this audience, maybe they do know somebody or maybe they are in the hunt for looking. Who is the target fit for who you're looking to hire?
0: I'll break down the different teams that we have and which ones actually exist on each of those teams. So currently, as I mentioned, Orbital Insight is trying to figure out what's happening on and to the earth. We ingest all this geospatial data into our platform. That platform has both a backend component, so it has an API that you can hit directly. We also have a UI on top of that that you can use if you're a less technical, less savvy user in that aspect. The teams that we actually have though in engineering at the core of it we have our infrastructure engineering team so this is the team that really works on things like devops site reliability cloud operations that core infrastructure for our platform working in the cloud all those components come into our infrastructure engineering and we're hiring on that team so we're looking for devops engineers software engineers that have much more of an infrastructure focused background anybody with cloud experience you know if you're using docker kubernetes terraform a lot of those cutting edge resources now for containerization and modularization. So that team is at the core of our platform. Second team is platform engineering. So obviously it sits on top of our core infrastructure. We have a microservice-based architecture. So that team is currently working on optimizing the platform we built. Actually, the exciting part right now is that they're working on the second version of our platform to be much more extensive, much more scalable and generic with a lot of additional capabilities that we hadn't had in the past. So they're, they're working on that new version of the platform. We're looking for additional backend software engineers for that team. On top of that, we have our our product engineering team. So this is the team that's responsible for building different apps, different products on top of that platform. As we're developing the next version of our platform, we're designing it now, we're gonna be starting to build the next version of our apps on top of that new platform. So it's actually a really great time to come and join that team if you have either UI or backend experience and are looking to be a bit more customer-centric, focused on delivering products to the customers, what their needs are, and hitting a lot more of those requirements. So very exciting in time for that team. Just hired a new director of product engineering for that team. So VG just joined us two months ago and is doing a great job building and leading that team and looking for a number of key contributors to come in and help grow that area of the team. Fourth team is our model engineering team, more akin to an R&D This is where a lot more of our core IP really comes out. The team is made up of AI scientists, so computer vision scientists, machine learning engineers, data scientists, kind of the whole gambit there. A lot of what we do in our platform isn't just collecting this data and making it available. That's a large aspect of the benefit. But the real magic on top of it is taking all those disparate data sources and running automated algorithms to do identification. So taking that data and taking the image in, automatically identifying cars, ships, trucks, building polygons, land use classification, migration patterns, whatever it is. We have a suite of automated algorithms that you can come in and just use natively within the platform. This team is responsible for building all those. So much more of an R and D team, a lot of patents coming out of that team. And we're looking for additional data scientists and computer vision scientists to come join us there. If you have experience on computer vision and data science from the get-go, like that's a great start. If you have exposure to anything geospatial related, if you've worked with satellite imagery before, if you've worked with connected device data across multiple countries and are familiar with some of the complexities that come with that, a great opportunity to come and work with us. If you're interested in the geospatial domain at all, a great area to come work with as well. So four teams there. And then we also do have our our chief architect and security architect as well in the team.
1: We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by The B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. The B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. Head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you've always wanted to be. Now let's get back to the interview. Let me ask you about across those teams. You know, you mentioned a new director for the product engineering team, and I know you have either directors or team leads. So as you're looking to either promote from within or bring in leadership talent from the outside, what are some of the key characteristics from a leadership perspective that you look for to run these various teams?
0: Sure. A lot of people, when they talk about leadership or think about leadership, they often just think about management. And we take a little bit of a different approach. I think the more holistic approach that anybody can be a leader. It doesn't have to be somebody in a management position or somebody in a position of power. You can be a leader in any position you want as long as you take that step to be a leader. One of the real big things we look for are your ability to be proactive. And this is kind of a key focus, especially for startups. You don't really have the, the luxury of having a number of folks in the organization that Aren't go getters? Aren't going to see something broken and try and fix it. So one of those key aspects is proactiveness. One of the stories we we like to talk about is you know if you and somebody else were trying to build a cart, just a, a wooden cart. You have a, you know a little chassis there and you have four wheels on it. Are you the type of person that you finish attaching your wheel and you see three other people attaching the wheel or trying to pick a wheel up and bring it over that you're just going to sit there and say hey my wheel's done I'll wait for you, or are you somebody that's going to say hey I finished my wheel. I'm going to go over there, help them pick their wheel up, help them screw something in, hold it for them, whatever it is, proactively trying to push the team forward. That's a core competency, a core skill that we really look for. That is a heavily valued quality of being proactive. Are you a go-getter? Are you driving to something? Are you accountable? So that's one real big one that we look for. And again, that's, that's not a managerial thing. It's a leadership quality that anybody can have. We look for it in our managers. We also look for it in ICs so that's a big one there another one that we really look for is i'll say from an innovation standpoint and it doesn't have to be our you know have you come up with something patentable in the last two hours have you written a new paper in the last two weeks it's it's more can you think outside the box so i won't go into the exact interview question but one of the questions that i ask every person coming into the engineering team is it's more akin to a brain teaser but it's a, it's a simple coding question the problem is extremely simple So finding a solution to the problem, I've never had anyone not be able to solve it one way. What I like to solve though is I ask the question because a lot of times in software engineering in particular, you come up with a solution and for some reason or another, it just doesn't work. Maybe you have an incompatible library, your machine doesn't have enough resources, you're on the wrong version of something, whatever it is, you need to think of a new solution. So the problem I ask is simple coding question, but how many different ways can you solve it? So there I'm looking for, okay, You know, maybe they've heard it before, they solved it once. Maybe they've solved it once, but can they think of another? Can they solve it five or six different ways? That tells me that they have the ability to really think outside the box, run into stumbling blocks, but move past them. And it kind of shows us how they think about things and how they go about solving problems. So it's another really big area of you know innovation, thinking outside the box. That is a, a big quality for us.
1: That's fantastic. So the proactive piece and the innovation side... Two key elements that, again, regardless of technical position of either, you know, in charge of people or as an IC, both go through and through. So you shared with us a little bit on the interview side of what happens on the innovation side. I'm curious, how do you screen for the proactivity piece? What are some questions or scenarios or are there any tricks that you found to pull that out from individuals and get a good sense whether or not they're going to fall into that proactive camp?
0: It's definitely a tougher one. It's something that's a lot easier, I'll say, to fake on an interview. Whereas you really want to get exposure to somebody over a few months and see, okay, are they actually operating that way or did they just you know, spin a good tale? Did they tell a good story? Admittedly, it's a much tougher one to screen for than the the innovation aspect where you can ask particular questions and see if they came up with answers. But from the proactive nature, you can you can start to tell based on questions you're asking if they probe further into the conversation. If you're asking a technical topic and you leave it a little bit more open-ended and they don't ask either clarifying questions or clarifications on some of the design details if you're doing a design question, that's somewhat of a hint there. So, you know, simple question would be, hey, you know, can you design, you know, an app like Uber Eats? So a food delivery system or a food ordering system. If they start right off the bat and say, here's my design, that says one thing. And the design might be really, really good, but there's a key component that might've been missing, which is, okay, you want me to design the food ordering system. Should I think about it in terms of you know, the product requirements? What are they? Is it the same as Uber Eats? Should I be talking about customers, drivers, and then restaurants? Is that the three components? Do you want me to think about the, the architecture from a high-level standpoint? Whatever it is, asking those clarifying questions, their ability to probe and learn more about the situation, those types of things show us you know some more of their proactive nature or not.
1: Love it. In interviews or in, you know, client conversations or in internal conversations, accepting whatever somebody else says at face value always comes with a massive amount of risk that you're just overlaying whatever your perception or your interpretation is on top of their situation.
0: Yeah, miscommunications, misalignments, exactly.
1: And it leads immediately, usually very, very quickly to complete misalignment and a lot of assumptions and a lot of frustration. And unfortunately, as leaders, we've all been there in some form or fashion, even as I cease too, being on the receiving end of that can't really get out of it. I've seen a couple of key themes from your leadership in the past that we talked about from Palantir. And when you were very proactive, you did think outside the box. I'm seeing a couple of those trends continue and are part of the culture that you're building right within your organization. So I'm curious, how do you as the leader reinforce these concepts, the three O's, the proactive nature, the innovation? How do you reinforce this so that it's not just something we screen for and then, you know, it's not really talked about or it's not something that people see. It actually becomes this concrete part of the culture. What are some of the ways that you embed that consciously into the culture of everybody in your organization so that they can embody these values and do some incredible work?
0: That's a great question. And I'll just run through the three. So from a, an organization standpoint, and probably the most fleshed out one is just being organized. Everything I do is extremely organized. There's you know, great provenance, great tracking, keeping it open and visible. There's not really much that I do that I don't share with my team. I tend to, whenever I'm tracking things or taking notes or organizing something, even if it's an org chart, I do that somewhere and then make it completely visible to the rest of the team. We have monthly all hands for engineering where we'll actually present this information so people are constantly getting it. You know, it's the adage in communication. If you said it once, you haven't said it at all. If you said it eight times, you've said it enough. So constantly re-emphasizing those topics, sharing that information again, but just being extremely diligent and being extremely organized and tracking in that sense that's one of them where I'll say it's, you know, showing by example or leading by example. So doing it myself, having very structured one-on-ones where, you know, we track them on a page that only myself and my direct report can see. And that's something we do across the entire team. Tracking OKRs, we have engineering level OKRs. We're very diligent about doing them quarterly, evaluating them, grading ourselves on them. And it's on a page that's visible to the entire company. Right, so just those types of things, doing something which is very structured, very organized and doing it very visibly i will say for that one, it's much more of a lead by example. So that's how we kind of do the the organization one and make sure that that's flowing throughout the organization, pun intended there. (laughs) For optimization, it's a little bit harder, but the two things, the two areas to focus on, one is efficiency within our actual products, and the other one is efficiency within the organization. For efficiencies throughout the team, throughout the organization, that's where a lot of the processes come into play. And this is something that I do like to keep distributed, have different folks work on these and kind of propose different policies or processes that we can implement. This one, I actually will just give major kudos to my team. A lot of them are actually very proactive about processes. One of the things that they've also helped teach me about is processes are are not just good for processes sake. What's more important than the processes themselves is the buy-in. So you can come up with the world's best process, but if you have no buy-in, it's moot, it doesn't matter whereas if you have a process that's you know 80% there or even 60% there but everybody's bought into it understands why we need to do that you know believes in the process and is you know looking forward to implementing it that's much much more significant so from the optimization of the organization standpoint it's having processes in place but having the right processes in place the ones that fit our organization the structure that we're at currently the size of our team the people that we currently have the things that we value as opposed to well, here's the way that Google did it. We should do it that way. Or here's the way I did it at a previous company. We should do it this way. It's, you know, be a bit more unique, really build up our culture as part of those processes. What works for us? And try something out when it doesn't work, we shift. We try something else out. So we're not afraid to put a process into place. If it doesn't work, swap it out, try something new. So I think that's one that we focus on there. Optimization from a coding perspective. This is something that we do a, a bit more through the requirements. I think we could do a little bit better job of having certain coding practices or guidelines about when we're coding things and doing a bit more tests on from a scale perspective, but really what it comes down to is our key performance indicators, our KPIs. So knowing that we have top level SLAs or KPIs that we need to hit and that we're working towards from a product perspective, that really sets the tone for how optimized we need to be within different aspects of our code. And that's really how that one fleshed it down. So it's something that the entire organization just has to hold ourselves accountable for. It's, it's no one person, myself or anybody else saying, you have to do this in a very optimized way or rethink about this, optimize. It's kind of the nature of what we're doing. We know the requirements are, we need to scale to this you know, level or not. So it needs to be kind of in the back of your mind always of how will this particular aspect scale? And we've seen it come into play a number of times because of the massive scale of data that we're working with satellite images come in and a single satellite scene or satellite image can be tens of square kilometers, can be hundreds of square kilometers. It can be tens of gigabytes of data in a single scene. So when you're dealing with a lot of these, we have petabytes of satellite imagery. We have terabytes of geolocation pings. The massive scale of that data requires you to be somewhat intelligent about how you're you're scaling out, how you're optimizing that data. So it's an inherent nature of the the problem set that we're dealing with. So that's how we focus on the, the optimization aspect. And then from an innovation standpoint, this is really just making sure that we're facilitating enough time to be innovative. The biggest thing you can do to hurt your organization from an innovation standpoint is not allow them to be innovative, not foster that, not give them the, the bandwidth to be able to think about new ideas. If you're constantly saying, here's the exact 10 things you need to work on this week, kind of going back to the Palantir case for that one team, if here's exactly what we need to build, There's no room for innovation. There's no room to think about more things. I will say the past year and a half, this is probably something that's made it extremely difficult because COVID, one, it limited the amount of R&D, true research that companies are able to, to afford at the time because everybody needed to be lean. It also took away the biggest aspect that leads to innovation, which is communication. Zoom has been great. It's been a great, you know, video conferencing in general has been a great substitute for being in the office and working together. What you don't have happen is the natural innovation that happens in those conversations. I like to describe this as it's almost like a single branch tree. A Zoom or a video conference takes one direction. If anybody branches off that conversation, the entire conversation goes in that direction. Whereas if you have 10 or 12 people in a room and you're trying to whiteboard, you're trying to do a design or innovate, and two people have some idea that they want to fork off and go explore, you can do that. You can have the main conversation go this way and a fork conversation take off so that aspect of innovation over the past year and a half i think has suffered quite a bit we're working out a lot of different things internally to try and combat that and make sure that we're, we're still fostering that type of culture and communication some of the things that we do right now though are proactively trying to think about what we can patent so having these idea generation conversations so in our D team they meet regularly at least once a week if not more and just have idea generation meetings So the loose concept there is focused on the work that we're doing. So it's not just completely open-ended, but put away what's on our project roadmap for the next three months, put away where tickets you have in the next, you know, the sprint that we're currently working on. Think a bit more expansively, think outside that box again. What ideas can we come up with that might solve some of our customer pain points? What ideas can we come up with that aren't even focused on a customer pain point, but we realize after coming up with the solution might solve something. You know, is there anything we can do that way? So ideation, you know, exploring that innovation, fostering that, giving folks the opportunity to think that way has been a big, big improvement.
1: Love the run-through of the three O's in a lot more detail. Okay. So let me challenge you with this one. Let's say there's somebody out there who's listening to this and is like, wow, three O's is pretty amazing. That's cool. However, from an organization perspective, they might not be as diligent about all the pieces of the puzzle and being very clear about what they're doing and open. So I'm curious, what advice with all of your experience just on the organization pillar. What advice would you share with someone who is very interested in the structure of what you've described, but may not have that in place today? Where should they even start in a small way that could help them get a little bit of clarity or give them a little bit of space perhaps to be more innovative?
0: Oh, that's perfect. And actually I was doing this last week with a few people. The biggest thing that I think about and the biggest piece of advice is properly track your to-do list. And what I mean by that is most people have different ways of tracking their to-do list, putting things on the to-do list, but it doesn't necessarily follow a structure or a certain format and it doesn't flow into everything else that they do. For instance, I've seen people that are, you know, they follow inbox zero. They're really good about making sure their inbox has zero emails in it or close to zero emails in it. But then I look at their tabs on Chrome and they have 37 tabs open at the same time, or you go to their Slack and they have 150 unread messages in Slack, whatever it is, it's they do it really well in one area, but it doesn't kind of flow throughout their entire workflow. So the advice there is do that. It, first off, if you don't do inbox zero, I'm a big proponent of something like that. So, you know, track things and you know knock them off if you can, but really allow that to flow throughout your entire entire work environment. So it's being structured with your emails, making sure that you're getting to that inbox zero with your tabs. One of the things I like to do is I only keep tabs open if they're something that I need to action, if they're a reminder for me. If I'm done with them at that point, I close them. If not, I put them into a to-do folder and track it that way. So it's something that I know I can whittle down that list. Slack and other conferencing tools like that or chat clients they have the ability, if you dig deep into the settings, to do things like an all unread messages. So there's a channel on Slack where you can just show all of your unread messages. It effectively allows you the ability to mark something as unread because you can read it and decide to action it later as opposed to clicking on the message, realizing you can't action it now and forgetting about it. There's a lot of tips and tricks that you can go into for all these different tools. And a lot of them are becoming much more productive with their you know, more recent features. But it's it's finding something that works for you across all the tools, as opposed to making sure one of them is following this very structured organization. The advice there is, if you want to become more structured, really organized in that sense, do it across your entire suite of, of tools and applications that you work with, as opposed to just one of them.
1: Love it. Fantastic advice. Thank you. All right. So, last question. Knowing everything you know today, all the experiences you've had, if you were to sit down with yourself at the, you know, early onset of when you got into that Palantir leadership role, what advice would you give yourself back at that point in time?
0: One is definitely this, you know, I've, I've learned personally from, you know, it wasn't the mantra back then. I didn't focus on these three areas consciously. Now it's a much more conscious thought. Some of them, you know, was subconscious, but really letting myself know things like you can be a leader without being a manager. You know, some places where I was a bit more hesitant to step up or do something or even be more proactive was at the earlier stage of my career. It's not necessarily known. Okay. Am I stepping outside of my bounds? Am I allowed to focus on that? Will I step on somebody's toes, knowing that it's okay to be proactive. And when you're unsure, ask somebody. So being a little bit more outspoken, I think at that point is something I would have told myself from an innovation standpoint. I think it's always important for anybody really in any role to make sure that you have time to do that. Back then I was I was really not focused on having that be an aspect of my of my day-to-day job. It was trying to get these things done and from a true organization standpoint it often combats the innovation. Organization is very much fit into the box, structure everything perfectly where innovation is jump out of the box and you know those two ideas are are somewhat at odds with each other. I think earlier on I was much more focused on the organization aspect and not enough focused on the innovation aspect. That's something that I would have told myself is, no, no, tone this down a bit, focus more on this, allow yourself to you know, develop new ideas, innovate, design a little bit more, come up with more novel solutions, come up with more you know, customer-driven value even, and focus more on that aspect of it and kind of balance out the three of them as opposed to having them be so lopsided on the organization standpoint.
1: Fantastic! I would love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. So awesome. I think we all just actually got a chance to do that. So thank you very much, Matt, for sharing your wisdom and expertise, your leadership, and all these incredible pieces of advice that you shared with us. Thank you so much. Can't wait to hear about all the incredible things that you and your company are doing. Where can people go if they're interested on the job side? We'll include a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes, but we can also include a link to the job's location. Where should they go if they're interested
0: in going to work for you? orbitalinsight.com is our company website. And on there, you can click on careers and see the different positions that we have open. So just head there and you can apply directly on the site. Niels, thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. It was a great conversation. Hopefully some of what we talked about today can go help future leaders or even some current leaders today.
1: I think we can definitely say without a doubt, 100% help. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Matt. Take care and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd welcome you to subscribe and give the show a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at B2BLeadershipPodcast.com. As always, I'm Nils Vinya, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Take care and have a great rest of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. And the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to B2BLeadersAcademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be.